Welcome to another episode of the Writing Expensive Words podcast. On this show, we take a relational approach to turning readers into fans by using expensive words based on our emotions to write compelling stories. This way, instead of finding customers who read, we find friends and fans who will go on any storytelling path with us as we walk down the winding roads that make up our author journeys. Get ready to learn more about writing the story of your heart right now on Writing Expensive Words. On today's episode, we are going to talk to the wonderful and super knowledgeable Christina Adams. And she forgot to mention this in the interview, but I just want to let you know, if you're interested in picking up any of her books, you can go ahead and check out ChristinaAdamsAuthor.com. And boy, she's got quite an extensive backlist, so you can go and read to your heart's content. Now, on to today's episode. All right, welcome to another episode of the Writing Expensive Words podcast. I cannot begin to tell you how excited I am about today's guest, Christina Adams, who I can already tell is a delightful, funny, um, smart, super smart woman and author and all sorts of other useful things. Uh, hi, Christina, how are you? Hey, thank you for the really lovely words. I'm feeling a little warm and fuzzy now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you stay feeling that way. That's my goal. So uh, let's go ahead and take a look at some of the things Christina does and has done. She's the author of 16 books and too many blog posts to count. I can totally relate to that. <laughs> uh, she helps writers overcome their creative obstacles on her blog, podcast, and courses over at the Writer's Cookbook, which is such a clever name, by the way. I love it. Thank you. When she's not writing, she's inflicting cooking experiments on her boyfriend or playing with her lovely, adorable dog, Millie. So welcome again, Christina. I'm so glad to have you today. Uh, I, you know, uh, just for people who are listening, I'm in Western Pennsylvania and uh, Christina is our friend from across the pond. So it's morning where I am. It's afternoon where she is. And for all my British listeners, I know they're going to be so excited for today's episode. So thank you for agreeing to come on. And I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for reaching out. Well, I feel like, uh, so let me just preface this by saying that uh, I research my guests to death almost. Um, I can't help myself when I start learning about another writer. I, I'm just like, I need to find out all the things they're doing. And uh, I found Christina because of her podcast, The Writer's Mindset, which the name alone, I was like, ah, oh, this is so cool because on Writing Expensive Words, we talk a lot about mindset. Uh, I have a whole series on self-empathy for writers because it's so hard to be nice to yourself. I feel oh, like, yeah. oh yeah, because you're like, you're getting critique from outside sources all the time, but also you are constantly critiquing yourself. So I had to learn how to be nicer to myself uh, when I was in that writing mode. And then after, you know, during release, when you come out with a book, it's like so nerve wracking and you just have to learn to treat yourself as a human being. <laughs> mm -hmm, definitely. But it's easier said than done, right? 
yes, like I need constant reminders. And that's why when I found your show, I was like, this is so great. Um, But on their show, they don't just talk about mindset. They talk about all sorts of writerly things. You cannot imagine the topics they cover and how exhaustive they are. And I just love it. Uh, Well done on the show. And I'm so excited again, that you're here. But when I was researching, I decided that I was going to buy and read as much as I could, like in three days of one of your books. Uh, oh, wow. my, my mom was visiting for her 60th birthday. So I was like, I have this tiny window when she leaves <laughs> and when our interview is. Um, so I read exactly 50% of your book, writing, uh, writing myths, myths and misconceptions that hold you back in your writing career. And it's, yeah. I, so far I have agreed with literally every single piece of advice that you give in there. And there are points when I just were, I was like laughing out loud. And uh, last night, my husband was like, why do you keep laughing? I'm like, because this is like all the stuff I tell people all the time. They don't believe me. Oh yeah. That's why I wrote it to be honest, because I finished my creative writing degree and felt kind of lost and didn't really know where to turn. and. I kept like seeing these recurring patterns of people getting stuck on this or that because of this or that often silly or just naive reason. And I thought, you know, I have to write about it. And I actually started writing it on Christmas day a few years ago. (laughs) I I was at my in-laws and just had this idea for a book and I was like, I've got to write it. I've got to write it. And I just started like planning out each of the sections and thinking about, okay, this goes here and I need to cover this and I need to cover that. And I spoke to a lot of my writer friends as well and said like, what mistakes do you see? Because obviously I see a lot, but people who teach slightly different things or write slightly different things or spend time with different people, they will notice other things as well. Yeah. And I think it's a fairly exhaustive collection of writing myths. So uh, good job on that. And I feel like the input probably helped because If I was going to sit down and write a book like this, I would probably come up with way too many things and then get in my head and be like, is this just my thing? Or is this something that other readers are experiencing? I mean, writers are experiencing. Yeah, uh, that's why I wanted to speak to as many people as possible. And also why it was helpful that I'd been running my blog for a few years at that point, because I'd had emails from people asking for help with X, Y, and Z. And also if you go to any sort of event and tell people that you're an author, they'll probably tell you about this great epic fantasy idea that they have and how one day they're going to turn it into a book. And I'm sitting there trying to be really polite and going, (laughs) you're never writing this because you've never even finished a short story. And I'm trying to be as polite as possible while sitting there thinking this is not happening. No. Yeah, that's the part You're where I, like, fantasy. <laughs> I really laughed like hard out loud because and people hate me when I say don't start with epic fantasy. They really don't like it. But I'm here like to it. be honest. I'm here to make life easier. And your life gets easier if you start with something simple because you get over that road roadblock of I've got so much to do. How am I supposed to do it? Where am I supposed to start? And that just terrifying situation of not knowing where to start and it is a case of you just need to keep need to start the wheels turning and once the wheels start going you gradually pick up momentum and you know I was 15 books in before I published fantasy and that was a because I vowed never to go back to writing fantasy again (laughs) and b because I hate world building and it was a real learning curve for me where my editor for every single piece of magical ghost law in my book was like how does this happen what does this look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? I'm like, I hate you, but also (laughs) thank you. 
She knows I feel that way as well. I've told her multiple times and she just laughs at me. Well, she's doing her job, you know. She, not she is, every- and she's made the rest of the series easier by asking those questions now. And it's going to be quite a long series and I'm planning quite far ahead. So knowing these things actually does mean that I'm not going to dig myself into a hole like George R. R. Martin is. Yeah, I mean, oh man, I, that's like such a sore subject with so many people. And I love um, in your book writing this, how you were like, we need to think of satisfying endings instead of trying to trick the reader. And I, um, yeah, I just wrote a whole course about that. So I was like, yes, I totally agree because people want to be clever. But like you said in your book, you don't want to get there to try to look like the smartest person in the room. That's not what readers are paying you to do at all. Yeah. And a lot of people do want to try and be the smartest person in the room. And they either do that by having super sexy titles that don't explain anything or by (laughs) making something super twisty and turny to the point where no one even knows what's going on. Most people these days are are reading, sorry, as an escape. Yes, sometimes they do still want to be challenged, but that is a much smaller market and you're probably verging on literary fiction if you're doing that. There's nothing wrong with literary fiction. I'm trained primarily to write that, but it is harder to make a living writing doing that kind of thing. Yeah, it's hard to sell for sure. It has a very small audience and I feel like that audience is really hard on its authors. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. So one of the things, oh, well, let me ask you this because I think I know the answer, but how did you get your start in writing? Oh gosh, that's quite a long story, actually. Um, I started when I was about seven and I wrote a crime story about a China teacup. And that's adorable. (laughs) The funny thing is I never even read crime at the time. I didn't watch it either. So I don't know where this idea came from. And I wrote that and then I carried on writing short stories, occasionally scripts and poems as I was getting older. And then I did a BA in creative writing when I was about 18 and graduated from that and got kind of lost and stopped writing for the most part for a few years. And I decided to do an MA in creative writing because my BA didn't really focus on fiction, not fiction, on script or poetry. So I was like, I I really want to study poetry some more. And doing that MA really built my confidence and it gave me a taste of self-publishing. And when I was done, I was like, well, I don't want this to end. So that's how I ended up publishing my first book in 2016. And that was an idea I came up with when I was about 18 as well. And it was kind of a more updated version with um, more detail, not more details. Yeah, more details, a different setting, um, different plot, but the same kind of characters and the same basic idea. And it took me three years to finish that series. Yeah. And it didn't take off until it was almost three years old. You know, at the time I didn't really have an audience and it didn't really start to build until I made the first book perma-free and then it just spiraled from there. Okay, that's great. Yeah, I noticed that you talked about blogging. I started out, well, you know, I tried to write a novel when I was 13 because that's, I hear a lot of stories like that. Like you said, I wrote a a book when I was seven. You know, you just kind of have it in you uh, and then you're like, well, I don't know what to do with this. So you pursue different things. But I started out as a professional blogger and then I realized, oh my gosh, I can write every day and consistently put out articles. I wonder if it's time for me to write a book finally and actually finish it Uh, Mm -hmm. because my degree is in comparative world literature. 
So, um, but I want to ask, because I talk to people with um, masters in, well, here, you know, uh, it's a fine art masters in creative writing, but like when I talk to them, I'm normally really disappointed because they don't even learn like how to plot here. So I'm wondering there, is it a more exhaustive program? No, I've, <laughs> I, I have spoken to people in the UK and the US who've studied creative writing and every single person has said the same thing, which is that you have to learn to write all over again once you have done that, because writing for an academic audience and writing for a reader are vastly different things. Yeah. And I think for me, the thing I learned the most was actually confidence and public speaking skills. It wasn't writing skills. I didn't really start studying plot until I published my first book. Um, because I, I had maybe a couple of lessons on it when I studied script writing and maybe one lesson when I did my three-year BA. Other than that, we never really talked about the psychology of story structure, why it's important, why you need to kind of follow the beats in a certain order for reader yeah. satisfaction. None of that was covered. And I do think that's a massive oversight. And I know some courses have changed their structure now and they do embrace self-publishing, but whether or not they are covering those important things to tailor your writing to a reader rather than satisfying your lecturer, I don't know. And it's certainly not something I would necessarily recommend to someone who is looking to publish because most of the successfully published authors I know who are making the most money are the people from a business background, not a creative one. Right, because they know how to sell their stories, which is such a huge part of it. Exactly. Yeah, well, thank you for answering that question for me. Uh, you know, it's a theory I have, but I'm always open to other people's answers. But so far, I haven't found anyone who's like, I graduated and I was ready to write my first novel. Like I knew how to do it. And I'm like, that's so sad. That's a bummer to me. Uh, I'm from Cal. I'm from Southern California. So I say words like bummer and dude and... <laughs> Um, so I apologize in advance. <laughs> oh, no, I love it. I love local slang. So don't, you should have to apologize. Although, yeah, what... I've been intentionally putting slightly local slang in um, my latest series. And I didn't realize, actually, that people outside of where I live don't understand these words until I tweeted one of them and someone asked what it was. And I used more slang to explain what the word meant. And I was oh, like, no. I don't know how to explain this in any other way. Yeah. Like, because to me, the my brain just couldn't explain it in any other way because that's the only language I had for this thing. Right. You're like, uh, I know that I understand how to make words into books, but how can <laughs> I explain this one concept? Yeah. I can definitely relate to that. But yeah, I live since I live in Western Pennsylvania now, people always kind of like look at me with the head tilt when I say certain words. Um, I also say you guys, which is like not empowering to females. But here they say yins for you all. Uh, and I am like, okay, I guess I could say that. But I've, I've tried to reprogram my brain, but it's not, it's not working out. It takes time. It does. All right. So um, on writing expensive words, one of the things that like the most prominent thing we talk about is emotions in writing. And I basically teach people how to take their own memories and emotions and mine them for themes and feelings that they can use for their characters. So when I read this in your book, I was like, oh, she's a kindred spirit. Do you know that reference? Probably. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Canadian author, that's why. Oh, yeah, my, my brain is half asleep because I'm sleep deprived. So I apologize if I do seem a bit dopey. 
<laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, it's it's a reference to Anne of Green Gables by Ellen Montgomery. Uh, and she has this best friend, you know, before besties were a thing in literature. Uh, mm-hmm. she has this best friend and she calls her a kindred spirit. And she means that even though they're not, you know, they're not similar, they have very different personalities, that they care about the same kinds of things. Yeah. So that's I, I yes, this made me feel that way. And I'll go ahead and read this. There is one thing that we can almost always write about from experience, though, emotions. This is when you're talking about the myth of write what you know. Uh, Emotions are what drive us as people. Even those who don't feel empathy still have feelings. Emotions are what make us human. They're what tie us together no matter where we're from or what we do. We all feel the same emotions, even if we all react differently to the same situation. Yep. So do you feel like that's something that you instinctively do as an author, or did you have to learn how to do that? I think for me, it's a bit of both. Like a lot of the time I know how a character's feeling, but Mm -hmm. if I'm not writing in first person, sometimes I can't articulate that, which is weird because I I write in first and third. And for some reason in close third, I sometimes forget to include the emotions and get in their head quite as much. Whereas in first person, it comes much more naturally, I guess, because it almost turns into a stream of consciousness thing. Yeah, for sure. And I remember on, on one of my books, I think it was what happens in Pathos, one of the character goes through grief. And one of my beta readers was like, you need to lean into this more because I'm not feeling it at the moment. And I think it was because there was an element of I was going through grief while I was writing it. So it was cathartic for me. But also yeah. I had a level of detachment from that grief because I was trying not to feel it whilst also writing it at the same time. So yeah. then I just kind of, leaned into it really hard and threw everything onto the page and it was surprisingly freeing actually I've had a similar experience where um we lost my father-in-law due to a skiing accident so it was very sudden um and I noticed that you started out what happens in Paphos that way I read the introduction because uh, I lived in Greece for seven years so I have Cypriot friends and I was like oh I have to read the beginning. And then I was like, oh, wow, this starts with like a really heavy situation. Um, but, you know, that now it was never even meant to happen. But it's so it's just great. I love that. And, you know, now I notice that I can tell when someone who's writing about grief hasn't gone through it because it's so it's such a deep wound that stays open for so long sorry I'm not trying to be gory but oh, you no, know no, I, I understand and it's funny because what happens in New York also covers grief uh the main character's best friend she's kind of not quite the main character she's the deuteragonist if I pronounced that right um she lost her mum and sister in a car accident and mm. she's going through grief and I always felt like I hadn't explored it in the same level of depth but I've had readers say no you have but because you hadn't experienced it then, you feel differently kind of about it, if that makes sense. Whereas yeah. Paphos and what happens in it is literally based on the fact that I also lost my nan right, like three months before I started writing it. And also that um, I did read at her funeral and it's similar to what I read at her funeral. A lot of people came up to me and said, I don't know how you could do that. You you must be a hell of a public speaker. And I'm like, well this is what I do. And she never got to see me speak in person. And also she inspired a lot of my writing. My pen name is based on her. So it was just my way of honoring her rather than sitting and ruminating on my grief. Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss. 
And thank you for sharing about that. Uh, yeah, I also read at my father-in-law's uh, memorial service and people were like, how can you do that? I was like, this is how I deal with everything. I write yeah. about it and then I read it to myself or I have someone else read it. So yeah, it's just part of our process. I feel like everyone deals with grief differently, but for me, I did experience that catharsis, but I know like on those days when I'm going to write about death, I'm going to feel exhausted after, and I'm going to yeah. need to like go to sleep immediately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny because I think if I hadn't lost my nan, when I did, I don't think I would have started writing my fantasy series after life calls. Um, Cause it centers around ghosts and it was, I don't believe in ghosts, even though I'm writing a ghost series. And it was after she passed away that I had the idea for it. And also that I started reading more fantasy about ghosts and necromancers and that kind of ilk. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it was the sheer level of escapism because I literally don't believe in ghosts, but there's always that kind of, oh, maybe it'd be kind of nice to see her again in the back of my mind. But I'm also like, no, that's creepy as hell. Um, <laughs> wouldn't happen Gen genuinely a few weeks ago i got up in the middle of the night came out of the bathroom i nearly had a heart attack because i thought i saw a figure standing in my boyfriend's office door it was the iron on the ironing board oh gosh and Your i got brain so was freaked out yeah, because it was so dark and because i'd be reading a ghost story my brain just freaked out and i was just like walking back to bed laughing at myself but I think, you know, when we lose someone, we've all had moments like that. I definitely like one time I was at the airport and this guy from behind looked like exactly like my father-in-law with his bald head and his silhouette. And I was like, that's impossible. But, you know, there's like that moment where your brain's like, is it though? Yeah. And you, and then you're like, oh, and now I'm totally emotional and <laughs> I have to deal with the after effects of that. Oh, yeah. I also wanted to ask you about something else that you wrote in your book, um, because this is what I feel like, you know, I want to know how you interpret this, dealing with this in your writing. And you said, I'd much rather have someone ask me what it's like to live with fibromyalgia than make assumptions and end up writing about it inaccurately. Yeah, it's. I don't actually know anyone who's ever written about an invisible illness in their writing. And I think it is because it's so hard, but also you look at conditions like fibro and they are inconsistent and readers don't like inconsistency and it can frustrate them. Yeah. And they don't like things that challenge their beliefs. Like my first book, what happens in New York, the main character has quite bad anxiety and travels to a place literally full of people and crowds and stuff. And one of my earlier reviews was, I don't understand how someone with anxiety could go to New York. There's literally a line that says a therapist told her to face her fears. Yeah. I saw, I saw that in your book and I was just like, I want to validate you completely because I have severe social anxiety and yeah, we just went to New York with a family to visit some friends that moved there from Greece. So that's the easiest way for us to see them. But I was like, I'm not, you know, I do experience social anxiety, especially around crowds. And it was very crowded, but that doesn't mean I'm going to lock myself in a box and exactly. nor would a character do that. Exactly. And that's literally part of that character's arc is overcoming all these sources of anxiety to become a businesswoman. And I think that's a really powerful message that you can have anxiety, you can have depression, you can have imposter syndrome, you can hate yourself, but you can still do it. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely resonate with that. You know, I'm always talking about how 
um, you know, people who live with anxiety, we can't control it, but we can manage it. Yeah. And that's really important to see um, in media. I don't, have you heard of the show Ted Lasso? Yes, I've seen the first <laughs> season, not the second one. So in the first season, um, it's a little spoiler alert, but Ted has a panic attack. And that was the first time I ever saw anything on uh, visual media where I was like, that is exactly what it feels like for me. Yeah, I was the same. I was like, this is so cool because he is that kind of really chirpy, optimistic type of person that you wouldn't expect to have a panic attack. Right. And I think it's important to remember you can be an optimist and still have anxiety. And I do find that hard to wrap my head around. But I also know people who are optimists who experience anxiety. So I know it's a thing. It's just yeah. hard for me to understand because I am always slightly more negative, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm definitely very optimistic, uh, you know, which I think my novel coaching clients appreciate and also hate at the same time. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I live with anxiety every day. I had like, you know, I had to like mentally prepare for this interview because I, it's like, you know, my, one of my biggest triggers is meeting someone new. And so I was like, okay, I'm meeting someone new on the computer, but I know it's still going to trigger my anxiety. How can I prepare for this ahead of time? But that doesn't mean I don't want to talk to you and hang out with you and talk about books, but I just have to take longer to get to that place than someone who's very extroverted, who likes meeting new people. Oh yeah, I totally get that. I was anxious at first when we started doing interviews and I kind of still get anxious, but now it tends to be after I've done an interview, I just need to take some time to wind down afterwards. I can't like immediately do an interview and then throw myself into doing some writing, whether that's for my books or for my clients. I always have to take a little bit of space to like watch some videos on YouTube or walk the dog or something just to kind of switch gears and disconnect a bit. Yeah, have that space where your brain is like resetting and yeah. Do you do the thing where when you talk to someone, you like think about all the things you talked about afterwards? Oh yeah. yeah I'm so bad for that. Like particularly recent interviews that I've done, my brain fog has been quite bad because I've been stressed. So I've mm. been trying really hard to concentrate on what interviewees are saying. And then I concentrate so hard, I forget what I was going to say, even <laughs> though it's related to what they were just saying. And I have to take right. a minute and be like, I'm really sorry, I've got brain fog. And most of the people I speak to know that I've got fibro and they know that some of them know that I'm looking to get diagnosed with ADHD. And both of those things come with the side of brain fog, which is fun because brain fog's exacerbated when you're stressed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> One of my kids has ADHD. And so I know I'm like, I have to make these adjustments. Um, but if you could just do a quick shout out, my number one fan the person who like met me when I was first writing, Tina has fibro. So if you could just say hi to her, she would absolutely love hi, it. Tina. Oh, I hope you're feeling okay. <laughs> She's been having a really rough couple of months for sure. I, I would actually recommend Curable if she wants to look at something that might be able to help. That I was nearly bed bound at the start of 2020. Um, okay. I'm still not amazing, but I can certainly function considerably better than I could two years ago. Um, and I came off my payments and all sorts. So definitely check out Curable. They've got loads of really great resources for chronic health conditions. And some of their um, patients have actually been cured of fiber. So that's great. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely, well, she'll, she'll hear you talk about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's curablehealth.com, I think. That's great. Thank you for sharing that resource. I know she I, and anyone else. I love else sharing it. I, I love it because it was life-changing for me. 
Um, and that's not hyperbole. Like whenever I'm having a bad day, now I know what my triggers are. So I know mm-hmm. kind of where to pull back. And I think it's the self, um, I've lost the word, the self-awareness that that helped me to build that now helps me to know when something could trigger me, when something is triggering me and also help me realize that I probably have ADHD because no doctor notices it in the quiet one. He gets loads of books but lift. <laughs> It's true. Right. It doesn't, and it doesn't look the same in every person either. Um, but yeah, I hope you are able to get that. I mean, you know, you can basically move forward from that knowledge. You're like, I think I have this, but it is nice to have the official diagnosis, which can be a pain to get. So I hope you're able to do that. Thank you. It will probably be 2023 when I get it officially, which is why I'm just like, focusing on coping mechanisms and doing what yes. I can I'm not the kind of person to sit and ruminate and wait for stuff but I do I did want to get the ball rolling because the sooner I get the ball rolling the sooner I can get answers you know yeah I mean I definitely there's definitely like you have to try out a bunch of stuff but um I would say like the sensory slime is very helpful uh for my wonderful kid they just sit there and you know, they, whenever they're having to listen to something or interact with something or the poppets just for, for, yeah, for my kid, it's definitely, um, you know, they need to stem, which means yeah. they need something else to do while they're doing the thing they need to focus on. Yeah. Right. I'm sitting here, like just rubbing my hands together. I should have a pot of hand cream so that I can just rub it in all the time. Well, I have this, this is my fidget ring. So it's three rings. And oh I just play with it. I'm playing with it right now. That's amazing. But I'm going to get I one. Too much noise. Yeah, it's very quiet. Like it, it's perfect. When I have like a meeting or an interview or something, I'm always like, okay, so thankful for this ring. Just because it helps with my anxiety to focus that energy on something else. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you doodle in a meeting, it can help you process what people are actually saying. Right. And they're like, oh, you're distracted. You're like, no, I'm, I'm more focused. Like I can yeah. hear what you're saying better when I do this. So yeah, there's, you know, hopefully all over the world, it's changing a little bit where people are understanding, Hey, this helps them focus. It's not what you think. And, you know, we need to accommodate different learning styles, but definitely it's an uphill battle for sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's a reason I'm self-employed. <laughs> You're like, this is my solution to that because yeah, employers yeah. don't understand. Yeah. I, I am actually like working with a HR client, writing about these things and helping to educate businesses on how to handle them better. And the client I, I was talking to was like that there isn't this understanding. Some people want to improve on how they handle things, but don't know where to start. And some people just don't even realize there's an issue. Yeah. Well, that's going to be very useful. Good luck on that. That's amazing. Thank you. I'm enjoying writing about them actually. Yeah, I bet it's kind of therapeutic in a way, right? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And you know, this is going to help people who struggle with the same sorts of things that I struggle with. Yeah. Yeah, I think it it helps two groups of people because it helps the managers who want to be more aware, but also it can help the employees find those coping mechanisms that might work for them. Or maybe they read the blog post out of curiosity and go, that sounds remarkably familiar. Maybe I should get a diagnosis, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's kind of, um, you know, that's what, well, for me, that's why I write. I want to help people who are going through something difficult realize, you know, 
there's hope, there's ways to deal with these different things. And uh, so for you, do you feel like that informs a lot of what you write or you kind of put it into the plot in more gradual ways? It can depend on the book. The main reason I write my fiction in particular is escapism, Mm -hmm. but also the themes in my life of mental health, of physical health, of love and of loss and all these things, they still make their way into the books in different ways. Like at its heart, all of my fiction is about relationships. It's about family. It's about friendship. It's about romance. And I think because growing up, I never felt like I had that real support network who was there for me and who did understand me it just became something really important to me to offer that thing that I didn't have growing up to my readers and I think as well in a lot of the pop culture that I watched when I was studying writing and even when I was a kid there were so many examples of rubbish friendships people stabbing each other in the back and sleeping with each other's partners like yeah. gossip girl on Montreal hill i enjoyed them at the time but i think if i rewatch them now i might cringe it's like why has all these female characters slept the same male character and like and i knew fine with one it. Guy, yeah i knew one guy who did that when i was at school and he was classed as a creep and people still found him attractive yeah that's interesting <laughs> yeah i didn't find him attractive or like him very much i got the creeps from him yeah. But um yeah, I just didn't find that healthy. And uh did you ever watch Lizzie McGuire when you were younger? Uh-huh. Yeah, I've seen that. There's this one episode where Lizzie falls out with Gordo and Miranda during a school project. And I remember Lizzie having this epiphany at the end of the episode about friendship. And I just remember thinking, I want friendships like that. And I think that on some subconscious level probably influenced my writing because it is all about having those healthy friendships yes they argue because people argue but also they realize that that relationship is more important than pride or any of the other things that stop people from saying I'm sorry because I do think it's important even if you're not the person who initiates the argument or the reason for the argument that you should be able to say to the other person I'm sorry because it's more important to you that you're still talking to that person than it is to boost your own ego or go, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. That's so interesting. I feel like I sort of do the same thing with my writing where I want to portray healthy family relationships because I didn't have that growing up. And so I know that, you know, I have a teenager, I have a elementary school. I know they're different words in, you know, over there. But so I have basically, um, I have three kids in all three schools. I have elementary, middle school, and then high school. So I'm watching them live time, like go through things, but I also see their friends who don't have a healthy support system. And I can relate to that. I understand what that feels like. And so, you know, like I, I always joke, I can't get away from middle grade books. I, you know, I was like, I'm going to write a new series. And then it ended up being middle grade again. And I was like, okay, I guess this is like a thing with me, but that's one of the, you know, I wanted to explore like characters in healthy situations, but also characters who are in unhealthy situations that understand that they can get healthy because of the healthy ones. And that's really important because when you are in that unhealthy situation, it's so easy to fall into that pit of despair and not see a way out. Yeah. 
there is a way out. It's just a case of unfortunately you have to keep going and it's not and do hard work. And it's not yeah, it's not comfortable, it's not fun, it's hard, it's stressful. Uh your hair may fall out and your skin may break out and you might itch a lot and you might not have an appetite or you might overeat. But it's important that you do keep going because you will find those people and you will find a way out. Definitely. All right. So I really appreciate all that you just said for my listeners. That's going to be super valuable to them because I'm always telling them, think about what happened in your life. You don't have to tell anyone what happened if you don't want to, but you can use that to create those emotional bridges to your readers when you write. And it sounds like that's, I mean, you know, I only read part of one of your fiction stories, but it was super well-written. I loved it. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it's it's hard, I think. And there is a pattern that I've noticed that is another thing people don't necessarily like to hear. I can't remember if I included it in writing commits or not. But basically, if people aren't very in tune with their emotions to begin with, it's really hard for them to then express their character's emotions as well because they don't know how to articulate how they're feeling. So if they can't articulate their own feelings, they can't articulate them for a fictional person either. And being really emotionally aware and kind of mindful enough to pull yourself back and go, okay, I'm angry. Why am I angry? What does this physically feel like? What does this mentally feel like? It's really hard. And I think some people shy away from doing that, but then their fiction suffers as a result. Yeah, they, they don't know how to do an emotion diagnosis. Yeah. Yes. If you're interested in learning how to do an emotion diagnosis, you can check out my book, Transform Your Story, Real, oh, sorry, Realize Your Story, Transform Your Life, uh, which is all about that. And even though I have an adult and a teen version, I really favor the teen version. It's so much better. Um, but That's yeah, I, I just, I was like, I, I wrote it as a companion piece for my middle grade series because I thought, what if they read this and they don't know how to get to the healthy point? you know, what are the steps that they can take? And I realized in my own life, I need to know why I'm feeling the way I do when I'm feeling that way, you know, thanks to important things like therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it goes a long way. For sure. Uh, So also in your book, I can't help it. I'm such a super nerd. You talked about Gravity Falls And you also talked about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I just wanted to briefly mention Gravity Falls. So my family and I re-watch it every single year. Um, And I always notice something new. And I've met Alex Hirsch. He is like a darling of a person. He's so nice. Um, But I, you were talking in both cases about how you need to stop assuming that readers want to be tricked. And I think a lot of authors, and we touched on this already a little bit, a lot of authors are like, how can I be the most clever? How can I subvert expectations? Because that's a phrase we hear a lot in the writing world. So, um, you know, you wrote a spoiler alert. You wrote about Tony Stark in Endgame and how you use, if you watch all the movies, which my family, we binged watch every single movie in two days before we went to go see Endgame. Wow. Because my kids hadn't seen it and it was like 110 degrees in California. So we're like, we're just going to stay in the air conditioning and do this so they can understand when we go. Um, But you can definitely see that thread and it is an expected thing to happen, even though you're like, oh, it breaks my heart. You're also like, it makes sense. 
So do you find that a lot of authors are still following this path of I'm going to switch up the ending and then confuse the reader? Why do you think that's appealing? I think it depends on the writer. I tend to find two camps and it's the people who know that they need to follow reader expectations or the people who want to do anything but. And I find that the people who want to do anything but it is about being the smartest person in the room rather than making friends. And you kind of want to make friends with your reader because they're the ones who are going to promote your book to their friends and they're the ones who are going to keep giving you money. And if you make them feel stupid, they're probably not going to like that. And if you're trying really hard to be the smartest person in the room, then it probably is going to backfire. And the plot you come up with is likely to be really convoluted and hard to follow, in which case you're probably going to get a lot of people who just don't finish reading. Right. They stop because confused readers always stop reading. Yeah. And, you know, most people read before bedtime. So if they're reading something that confuses them, then it might put them to sleep or it might annoy them or they might just not understand it because their brain's tired and they've had a long day. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like that saying, uh, easy reading is terribly hard writing. <laughs> yeah. And I, d- I think people underestimate that. I, it's really important to me that I do make things easy to read, whether that is fiction or nonfiction, whether it is a poem or whether it's client copy. Because I think people underestimate it. I have certainly had people I've worked with in the past who think that using the big words makes them look really smart and it means they'll attract the right people. And actually, it doesn't always work that way because if you're throwing around lots of big fancy words in every single sentence or your sentences are really long or convoluted, people just switch off these days because they've got so many other options than they had 50 years ago, 100 years ago that you're not going to get the same response that you would have done when you published way back when. And also when something is easy to read, then people connect with it more because they can immediately qualify themselves or disqualify themselves. So it's much easier for them to identify themselves as your audience. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I definitely, I can, I can see those two camps too. And when I'm working with someone, uh, you know, cause I get approached by a lot of first time authors and they're like, help me create this book. I've always dreamed of writing. And I'm like, okay, well, who's your target audience? And they're like everyone. And I'm like, wait, what? No, you can't do that. And those people who want to target everyone, I feel like they're more likely to want to, uh, be the smartest person in the room and, actively be okay with confusing people, which I can never understand. So usually like, yeah, thankfully all the clients I've had like that, I've been able to kind of like, you know, slowly move them into the other camp. Uh, But there are some people that, I mean, I'm just like, I would not want to work with you. And I would, I don't trust you with my reading time or my reading money. Yeah, I found the other thing that people who fall into that camp often want are the people who want the critical acclaim rather than the readership or the money. And if you're self-publishing, the odds of getting that critical claim are so unbelievably slim. It's like, it's not really worth you bothering. I totally agree. Totally. Um, Also, you brought up something in the last point where you were talking about writing pieces of copy. And I noticed that you talked about this in writing myths, because after I finished with my editing certificate program, I did a copywriting course because I knew like these things are connected. And I always talk about 
business, I always use business terms when I'm talking about books. And sometimes people get so offended that I would do that because it's an art. But I'm like, even you have to sell a painting, right? Like you can't just, so how do you find writing copy? And was that something that was like obvious that you felt you needed to learn to do, or did you kind of accidentally fall into it? I accidentally fell into it because when I finished my BA, like I said, I was quite lost. And one of my friends who had the same qualifications as I did said, why don't you give this a go? And that's basically how it started. And so I've been freelancing on and off ever since. And I had some full-time jobs, primarily writing blog posts rather than sales copy. I Mm -hmm. do do both, but I prefer the educational side of things to the sales side of things because I like helping people. And I know like if you do sales right, you are doing it to help people, but that can be a real challenge to write. So if you're not super aware of like your audience and the problem solving and you don't do all the research in the background first, mm-hmm. then it's a lot harder to put something super solid together. Whereas with a blog post, I think depending on the style, you can usually do a little bit less research or you can do a different type. Whereas copy, you need like ideally a lot of research from customers and prospects and things. Mm -hmm. And you don't necessarily need that for a blog post. You just need an awareness of what the problem is. Right. Well, and I guess like for me, I always find that, you know, when I'm looking at copywriting listings, I'm like, oh, can I actually even do that without feeling like I'm crossing an ethical line. Like I saw an ad for a pharmaceutical company the other day. I'm like, no, just pass on that 100%. Yeah, it it's hard. Like I focus on SaaS, mental health and marketing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had people come to me and ask for help with other stuff. And I'm like, this is really out of my depth. Have you tried this person? <laughs> and so it's not good, always though. easy to send stuff on to someone else and to say no and stuff but you are then helping other writers as well. Yeah. And I think that's such uh, that's much less offensive to a client to be like, Oh, this other person specializes that instead of like, I don't want to do that. I don't think what you're doing fits with me. Cause that, like, even if you say that, which can be a hundred percent true and also super valid, they might be offended. Like, what do you mean? It doesn't fit with you. So if you're like, Oh, I know this, you know, just hand off the referral. That's something I definitely like. I don't want to format anymore. Uh, That's just where I am in my life. So I have a friend that formats and I send everyone to her and she's happy and they're happy because she does a great job. And I'm happy because I don't have to format it. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate. I've started outsourcing some stuff and it makes me deeply uncomfortable, but also it saves me time. And that's something that I found really interesting that my accountant said to me is if someone can do something faster than you can based on your hourly rate, then you should outsource it because it will save you time and make you more money in the long run. And then you can have more time for writing. Exactly. Yeah. I think that is very, yeah. I'm also controlling. I'm still at the phase where uh, I format everything and I don't, and I make my own um, covers because I have a graphic design background, which I don't recommend making your own covers if you don't understand how no. to market, what what kind of piece of marketing a cover is and what it should do. I just always preface that because 
I know a lot of people think they can do it, but if you don't understand marketing and graphic design, you're going, you're tumbling down a hole that you need that. You need your cover to be amazing, which your covers, by the way, are gorgeous. And I also want to say that if you want an example, if you're listening and you want an example, go read Christina's synopses because they are tight. They're short. They tell you everything you need to know. They're great. You can tell that she has a background in marketing. I'm assuming you wrote those yourself. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did all the, I did most of my covers and I did all the copy and I'm kind of always tweaking them. Um, I'm always thinking of ways I can improve them, looking for ideas of things people have put in reviews, like, oh, this is useful. Yeah, I can include this or things beta readers highlight in their comments about things that they like. I'm always kind of open to changing them. Like I'm thinking of changing the blurb for my fantasy book at the moment to focus a bit more on some of the trends that I'm noticing around those kind of books and leaning into those a bit more. That's so important because, you know, you know, I know the listeners probably know, but everything in literature, in the writing world is constantly changing and the trends are always different. So if you have a book that's older, you can always refresh the synopsis and adjust it to be on point with the trends that are happening. And it's not a dishonest thing as long as you have those ideas in your book. Yeah. And people will know if they've read it or not, because they can see if it's in their library. So it doesn't matter if you change those things, you might just end up reaching a wider audience. I think, I don't know how many versions of the synopsis I went through for my first book, but I just kept changing it because the really hard thing is knowing that you can't include everything and everyone in your blurb. And you desperately want to, because all these characters mean a lot to you, even if there is only one protagonist. And most books only have one protagonist, whether you admit it or not. And so pulling back and doing like this bird's eye view of something you've spent weeks, months, years putting together is really, really challenging because you've got to go, okay, this is relevant. No, that subplot's not relevant. No, this character doesn't need a name. No, they don't even need to be mentioned, actually. It's really hard. And it's like the ultimate form of editing because you're cutting out so much. Well, and I think that's why it helps if you have some kind of marketing background because your author heart is dying, right? When you're like, I can only have one name in this unless I have two protagonists and then I can only have two, what? But the marketing side of your brain is like, catch them. You have, I think the average attention span for looking at something is nine seconds now. That is such a short amount of time. And as writing, as a writer, that really intimidates me. But as someone who writes copy, I'm like, okay, I can manage that because that's what they teach is brevity and impact. So I, go ahead. I was going to say they're a really good exercise, I think, because they are like a weird combination between fiction, nonfiction and poetry because every word has to earn its place. And Mm. I know certain writers love their purple prose, but you can't have purple prose in a book blurb because readers aren't going to make it past that first sentence. Yeah, you're you're speaking truth. I affirm that completely. (laughs) Okay, I have um, one other question for you. And so in your book, Writing Myths, which everybody should check out, it's great. I've only read half of it. 
but I've laughed out loud like three times. I count how many times I laugh out loud because to me, that's like a sign of excellence. It's very difficult to make people laugh when you're writing. Um, so my question is this, in your book, you said that a lot of people don't want you to say your age on their podcast or when they're interviewing you. Um, but I am opposite. I want to know, do you want to tell us how old you are? Yeah, I'm fine with that. I'm 31. I was 28 or 29 when I did writing myths and I had people say like, oh, we don't want you to talk about your age because it might make our listeners feel inadequate. I'm like, but most of them aren't as stubborn as me or <laughs> like being brutally honest, I'm stubborn and don't like being told what to do. So even if like my mom or my boyfriend or my best friend says, are you sure about that? I'm like, yes, I am. Goodbye. I love you, <laughs> but no. And when I published my first nonfiction book, Productivity for Writers, I did have people, including beta readers, including my boyfriend, who I've been with for 12 years now, say, okay. are you sure you should be publishing that now? Should you wait until you're a bit older? And I was like, well, people are asking me for this. And if, you know, my blog audience are literally asking me for it, surely they're the best people to say if I should publish it or not, you know? Yeah. And I um, published it in, I think, September 2017. And until my first book series took off in 2019, it was my best-selling book. I can totally relate to that because... My, yeah, my best-selling book is the one I wrote with my co-author, which is Write the Perfect Read the Fiction Edition, which people are like, what is, yeah, I think that book came out when I was 36. I'm going to be 38 in a month. Um, but people were like, how can you write this? I was like, what do you mean? How can I write it? Like, they're not even teaching this stuff in university. People need to know these things in order to, and it talks about self-publishing too, like how to hire an editor, how to find a formatter. But uh, I just love your story because I know that a lot of my listeners are young and especially I have a pretty big following in India where they're having an explosion of creativity. And a lot of the people who are writing are in their 20s and they feel very intimidated also because their culture values, wisdom and age. But uh, I think what you're saying is do it. If you know you have something to offer and people are asking for it, you shouldn't even think about your age. Yeah, exactly. I don't see why age matters because particularly as women, we get this conflicting message. Like you're only valid if you're young. People mm -hmm. only care about you if you're young. But then, no, you need to have all this wisdom and experience at the same time. And it helps if you're white as well. And it's like, well, what? what? It's yeah. so conflicting and so confusing. So my message is if you want to do it, just do it. Right. And if you have, if you know, obviously you have 16 books out. How many books do you need to have before you can write a book about how to write? That doesn't even. Exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, if you're listening, her book that I read is super helpful. And I had to learn all of those things the hard way, but you don't have to, because you can go by writing myths by Christina Adams right now. And you can learn about how you don't need to even give these things a second thought. Uh, and also I want to give you an opportunity, Christina, what is a way that my listeners can follow you, can interact with you? What's your latest book? Tell us what's going on for you business-wise. So at the moment, my latest book is The Mummy's Curse, which is the second book in the Afterlife Cause series. And um, if you like a combination of fantasy, romance, comedy, particularly sarcasm, um, 
then I would definitely recommend it because, I mean, there's an Egyptian mummy that wakes up after 4,000 years. You have to lean into the comedy of it. Of course. And yeah, I, I had so much fun writing that book and it's kind of a four book arc that I'm working on and I'm editing book three right now. And it's like Christmas every morning when I get to edit it because I just oh, have so fun torturing the characters. And if you want to check out the podcast, which is The Writer's Mindset, you can find it at writerscookbook.com forward slash podcast. And at The Writer's Cookbook, we have three to 400 blog posts on pretty much every aspect of writing you could possibly think of. And if it's not covered, do drop me any, no, don't email me. I'm terrible with emails. You can find me on Facebook, <laughs> which is um, forward slash Christina Adams author. And I've got a group on Facebook for podcast listeners called The Writer's Mindset and also a reader group that, I'm not going to name because I might be renaming it, but you'll be able to find it linked on my Facebook page. Um, so do come and find me on there. I'm, yeah, Facebook's the best place to find me because that's where I spend most of my time when I'm not out with the dog or pretending to write. <laughs> <laughs> what I am on all actually the writing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter as Christina Author as well. That's probably the other place that I am. I, I have Instagram. I don't really check it. Okay. Well, Twitter is a good place for writers. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mostly dog pictures when I do post, I shall warn you of that. I mean, that's, I love dog pictures. I think okay. most of the listeners love dogs, which I told you before we started, but yeah, yeah, they always hear my dogs in the background. We've had no I, dog interruptions today. I know that's amazing. It is amazing. My dogs must be really tired. That's good, right? Peace for you. Yeah. Yes. That means they played thoroughly when they went out this morning before it started raining. <laughs> Our dog is just protesting because she's in a bad mood because she's a Westie. So she's always in a bad mood. She's having an attitude day. She, oh, she definitely, is. She <laughs> definitely is. She flits between wanting all the attention and having an attitude day. And then occasionally she will have both. So she will get annoyed at you because you're not giving her enough attention. And she'll like do a puffy little sneeze to say give me attention and it's just the funniest thing ever because you don't associate sneezes with people who are in a mood I mean she definitely does sound like a teenager uh so I can I can fully validate all of those things well thank you so much for being on the show I had a blast I wish we could have talked about the Marvel Cinematic Universe more because I could literally talk about that all day long Um, But it was just a pleasure to have you. And thank you for all the wonderful advice that you gave my listeners. And uh, yeah, I will talk to you, I guess, when I come over to the writer's mindset later Mm -hmm. on, which I'm very excited about. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really, really fun. All right. Remember, it is never too late to write the story of your heart. This has been another episode of the Writing Expensive Words podcast with me, your host, Kristen Spencer, I'd love to hear your amazing writing thoughts and questions from your awesome writing brain. You can find me on Instagram at kristen.n.spencer or at literary symmetry. Or you can email me at kns at literarysymmetry.com. This podcast is funded by awesome listeners like you. If you'd like to support this podcast and keep it rolling, you can head over to www patreon.com forward slash expensive words. You can keep all of my hosting and software needs going for the show by donating less than what it costs for one fancy cup of tea a month. And to be eligible to join writing coaching calls with me, check out the $12 a month sponsorship. 
You will get to ask me questions live about the story of your heart once a month and meet other cool writers. Thanks again for listening and happy writing.